a closed book. We don't know too much about it. Uh, in fact, probably what we do know from Ezekiel is from one of two sources, one of which is G-rated, the other which is R-rated. Now, the G-rated source is Play School. Um, you might know the song, Them Bones, Them Bones, Them Dry Bones. That's it. Mary had it on the right pitch. That's good. <laughs> that's from Ezekiel, that image of the dry bones. Uh, the R-rated source, which some of you may have seen, some of you may have not, is Pulp Fiction, where Samuel L. Jackson's character... Uh, quotes the book of Ezekiel before murdering people. Uh, actually, he misquotes the book of Ezekiel, but that's not the worst thing in the movie. <laughs> now, between these two sources, play school and pulp fiction, is sort of a, a vast sea of unfamiliarity. Would you say that that's probably true? Uh, we don't know too much about the Ezekiel, uh, about the book of Ezekiel, most of us. Uh, but this book really does deserve our attention. It really does. It, prevent, it presents a, an astonishing picture of who God is, uh, one with remarkable clarity and focus, and one, in fact, with an emphasis that no other book of the Bible shares. Uh, this simply can't remain a closed book. And for many of us, uh, it might actually be like sort of the missing pieces of a puzzle. I don't know if you've ever tried doing this, but you sit down, you try to do this thousand-piece puzzle that's been sitting in the attic or in the wardrobe for years, and you pull it out, and you try to do it, and then you go, oh, can't finish this thing because it's dotted with all of these gaps. I'm missing some pieces. And for some of us, we've got a picture of God, if you want, that's a bit like that puzzle. It's largely filled in, but there are some gaps and some missing pieces. And the book of Ezekiel actually presents us with this full, astonishing picture of God that may well fill in some of those gaps. And without this full picture of God, it's actually a dangerous thing not to have this picture of God. If you could imagine um, going for a bushwalk somewhere new, which is totally not the sort of thing you would want to do over the last week with all of the, did you get the ash leaves falling in your, yeah, yeah, that, you absolutely wouldn't want to go out this week. But imagine if you went out for a bushwalk somewhere new, there's no reception, so you've got to bring the sort of thing that people younger than me never use, which is a map, a paper map. You bring it out and imagine if you, unbeknownst to you, you had the wrong map. So you're out there in the bush, exploring all these paths, and you're like, oh yeah, this is about right. And then you realise, there's that horrible moment, you realise, you know, I don't know where I am. I've actually been following the wrong path, and this map is no use to me. Now, what's the danger in that moment? Well, firstly, you might not end up where you thought you were going to end up. And then secondly, you may well get stuck out there without enough food and enough water, all because you've got the wrong map, the wrong picture. Now, the Israelites, at this point in history, when Ezekiel is written, are in danger of that very thing. They've got a wrong picture of God. And as a result, they're in fact very lost. They're very much in danger. And God's word to them in this book intends to bring them to that awful moment in the bush where you look down at the map and you go, oh no. The book of Ezekiel actually aims to bring us to that moment as well, for us to check the map, for us to check the picture that we have of God and to ask really the hard questions. Do I have the right picture of God? What if I don't? What if I thought I was okay, but in fact I'm very lost? What if I'm in danger? Really tough questions. And to think about those questions together, we really need the Lord's help 
to help open our minds and our hearts. And so how about we pray together as we jump into this book? Yeah, Father God, I just have the words of that song in my mind from earlier on. Come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy forever a holy God. Come and worship a holy God. Lord, please show us who you are. Please show us who you are in your holiness. Show us a picture of who you are according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now just to set the scene, this book of Ezekiel, what's happening in history around the time that it's written? And who is this bloke Ezekiel anyway? Well, at this point in history, um, it's actually long after Abraham and it's long after Noah and it's long after uh, Jacob and Joseph and all those guys in Genesis. It's long after Moses. It's even after King David. We're at a period of about 600 BC, give or take. And this is around the time where you get the book of Daniel. This is around the time where you get the book of Jeremiah. And if you look over the land of Israel, it looks very different to how it did a few hundred years earlier. What's happened is the Assyrians, a country in power from the north, they come through and they've swept through a lot of the land of Israel and they've taken a lot of the people out in exile. They've put many to the sword and they've enslaved others. And uh, Israel itself, the, the land of the, the smaller land of Judah, uh, where Jerusalem and the temple is, has managed to survive. They're sort of built a bit higher up on a ridge, so they've survived the onslaught. Um, but now, about 150-odd years later, the Babylonians, another group from the north, come through and they sweep through Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, here's sort of an artist's depiction of how that may have looked. It would have been a horrible moment, don't you think, to be in the land, in your home, and then the invaders come through and they carry you and your family off into exile, off into a foreign land, away from your home, away from the temple where you meet with God. Now imagine if you're an Israelite, what might you be thinking at this point about God? Maybe you're thinking something like, where is he? Does he still see us? In fact, Sky and I just went and saw uh, Les Mis just across the road at Laycock Street Theatre. It was excellent. Um, one of the things I really love about this play is charting people's attitude towards God. So you've got the, the poor and the destitute, those under the thumb of corrupt power. And they say things like, you know, where is God in their songs? In fact, right at the start of the play, you've got those guys with Jean Valjean, the ones who are enslaved and they're singing, look down, look down. He said, Rob sings in all of his sermons, so I've got to show him that I'm in fact better. Right? So look down, look down, sweet Jesus, hear my prayer. Look down, look down, sweet Jesus doesn't care right at the start of the play. A man in slavery. Where's God? He doesn't care. And that's what the Israelites may well be thinking at this point as well. Has God forgotten us? Is he distant from us? Because there's the temple back in Jerusalem where we meet with him. It's still up, but we're not there. Has he lost us? Has he lost the battle? Maybe the gods of the Babylonians by whom we've been conquered are the stronger gods. 
You see all the questions they may well be asking? And breaking into that scene with all of those questions is an astonishing vision that God gives to a man named Ezekiel. 30-year-old dude, about my age. He was training to be a priest, but that job is, how do you say, it's, it's redundant now because the temple's back there and they don't have access, so he doesn't have a temple to serve in anymore. Instead, God makes him a prophet, a man with a message for the Israelites. And he breaks in first with this vision. Come with me to Ezekiel chapter 1, if you could. It's on page 692. Now, we don't have time, uh, if you're familiar with this chapter, we don't have time to do a full tour of it. Um, It's one of the craziest chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, What Ezekiel sees here is is just mind-bending. He sees thunder, he sees fire, he sees uh, lightning coming out of fire, he sees people with the legs of calves like cows. He sees wheels flying around and wheels within wheels. It's all this really bizarre sort of vision. But just come with me to kind of the point of the vision, which is verse 26. Can you see that there? Above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. Ezekiel sees a throne in this vision. Well, actually, no. He sees the likeness of a throne. He can't even quite capture it in words. It's like a throne, but it's somehow more glorious than a throne. And then he sees someone on the throne. Actually, no. He sees the likeness of someone on the throne. Again, he can't quite capture it in words. Uh, In fact, the original passage here in Hebrew, this chapter, um, is one of the, the worst written chapters in the Bible. It's like reading a, a third grader's writing, or it's like reading someone speaking in, in text speak, right? It's so out of keeping with the whole rest of the book because Ezekiel is so overwhelmed by what he sees that he can't write it down clearly. He's grasping at words, he's grasping at images. And why is that? because he sees a full picture of God in his glory on the throne. Take a look at verse 28. Such was the appearance, this is halfway down, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Again, he can't capture it. And then look at his response. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. So here's a true picture of God in his glory. And what does Ezekiel do? It's not only his language that fails him. It's his legs that fail him. He falls down as though dead. And so many people across the scriptures, when they see God in his glory, do exactly this. Think about Moses before the burning bush. Think about John and his vision in Revelation. Think about Isaiah. These men fell on their faces before God as though dead. Now, why do the Israelites need this picture of God? What is it that they're missing? What is it that they're failing to see? Well, in fact, that's the wrong question. It's not that they're failing to see something. It's that there's something in this vision of God that they don't want to see. Come over with me to chapter 3, verse 7. See here, um, God sends Ezekiel out with uh, these visions that he sees and with messages for the Israelites. But what's he going to find as he goes out? Verse 7. 
But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, says God, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. It's a bit of a weird image. A hard forehead. What's that mean? Well, basically it means even if you hit them over the head with the truth, they're going to go, I'm not listening. Why? Because they've got a stubborn heart. They can see the truth. They can understand the truth. They can understand this picture of God, but they don't want to accept it. They don't want to hear what Ezekiel is about to say. In fact, they won't even listen when Ezekiel starts doing really strange things in his house and out in the street. God, in fact, has him do sort of like this weird performance art series, I guess you could call it, like on a slow night over at Laycock Street Theatre or, or in Newtown or something like that. Like it's this really strange performance art thing. First of all, he ties himself on his side on a bed for about a year. He just stays like on one. Could you imagine the bed sores? It would be awful. Right? And he doesn't say anything. God actually says, I'm going to stick the, the, your tongue to the roof of your mouth so that you only say what I tell you to say. Right? There's the first part of the series. The second part of the series is he makes a little model city of Jerusalem, like out in the street. And then he pretends to wage war on it. Now, could you imagine, like, if you're an Israelite and you see this guy who looks like a toddler playing with Lego or something, and you say, what is this guy doing? Then the third thing he does is he goes and he bakes some bread, but he bakes bread over cow dung, right? It's showing, like, this, this is so unclean, this is wrong, you shouldn't bake bread this way, it's disgusting. And you can imagine, again, the Israelites seeing him do all this and going, what is this drama queen up to? What is he up to? Well, the Israelites won't listen. And so God starts putting like a non-verbal exclamation mark to the messages that Ezekiel has. He's saying, I can't get your attention with words. I'm going to give you some pictures. And still, they won't listen. This is their big problem. This full picture of God comes to them, exposing their problems, and they refuse to listen. What's their problem? What's their problem? Well, they believe that they're in exile because they believe that God perhaps has forsaken them. Or they believe perhaps that God no longer cares or that he's broken his promise. But the real reason they're in exile is because of their sin and they refuse to accept it. That brings us then to chapter 6, the reading for today, page 695. And the purpose of this passage, it's a, it's a verbal oracle, a message that God gives Ezekiel for the Israelites. And it's meant to sort of grab them by the shoulders and shake them out of their apathy and out of their suppressing the truth. Listen to these words. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. See, straight away there's a sense that God is actually speaking to all of Israel here. Look up to the mountains. In fact, there's a, there's a ridge that runs from the north of Israel, thereabouts, particularly of Judah, down to the south, and the temple in Jerusalem stands on this ridge. Right, so he's, he's looking out over all this and saying, prophesy to all of these mountains, to all of Israel, there is a message to hear. Behold, 
I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. The judgment of God is coming. Why is it coming? We'll look out onto the mountains. Look to the high places. And what do we see? What do we see on the high places in the mountains of Judah? We see idols. We see statues to false gods. And it's in fact not just on the mountains. Keep your finger here in chapter 6, but flip over to uh, chapter 8. Here, God gives Ezekiel a vision of the temple. He shows him that this idolatry isn't just happening out on the high places. It's happening at the spiritual heart, the spiritual center of the Israelites, the temple, the place where God meets with his people, the place God had given them to meet with him. And they're setting up idols. Take a look at verse 7. God brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So he gets Ezekiel to, to like dig in through this wall and this vision. And what does he find? He finds the elders of Israel, the leaders, the spiritual leaders. And they are bowing down to idols in the temple courts. They're bowing down to images of creeping things and of animals instead of worshipping God. And it's kind of like, could you imagine if you came in here on a Sunday morning and what you see is like all the curtains, are, the blinds are drawn down, all the lights are off, and, uh, and me and Andrew and Rob Wright, we're all sitting here at the foot of the stage, bowing down. And in front of us is a statue of, of Buddha, right? Or a statue of Ganesh. Or maybe just like a poster of Rob Jenner or something, right? <laughs> But seriously, imagine that. Imagine walking in and you see the leaders of this church bowing down to an idol. With the blinds closed, with the lights off, what would you be thinking? Well, here's how God interprets it. Verse 12, he says to Ezekiel, son of man, which is often his title for him, by the way, son of man, have you seen what the elders do in the dark, each in his room of pictures, his room of idols? For they say, and notice what they say, notice their assumptions here about God. They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Do you see there their false picture of God? Do you see how they're using that to justify their idolatry? We can turn to these idols. Maybe these idols will look after us. Maybe these idols will save us. Maybe these idols will do what we want them to do because the Lord doesn't see us. He's forsaken us and forsaken the land. The vision goes on, and we won't go into all of it, but um, God actually says to Ezekiel, you'll see even worse things than what you've just seen here in the temple courts. He says, go on in, and you'll see women weeping in front of a statue. They're weeping because uh, most commentators say uh, they've sacrificed their children to idols. Gosh. And then he says, go into the temple itself. You'll find 25 men bowing down to the sun. Not because they're doing yoga, because they're worshipping the sun, the God of Egypt. Egypt was a long time ago. But you see, even the temple has become infected by idolatry. Every heart in Israel has been infected by idolatry. And this is God's response. Move back to chapter 6 with me, verse 4. Here's his response. 
your altars shall become desolate and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols and I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols and I will scatter your bones around your altars. It's pretty full on. But what God is saying here is their time for idol worshipping is finished. He's bringing judgment. See, he's already cut down many of the Israelites through the swords of Assyria and of Babylon, these foreign invaders. He's carried many of them off into exile, but now he's even going to destroy the temple. Do you see there? Your altars will become desolate. Your incense altars, these things in the temple, shall be broken. The temple itself is now going to be destroyed. And the Israelites must be thinking like, no, (laughs) this can't be. We're God's people. And we know we're God's people because the temple still stands. There's still hope for us that we can go home and, and worship God in the temple. We're his people. God can't destroy it. But by destroying the temple, God's actually saying, you are not my people. You've turned to idols. You've stopped worshiping me long ago. And now I'm putting an end to it. But that's not fair. You promised, God, you promised that we'd be your people and live in your land and enjoy your protection. You're breaking your promise. Actually, God isn't breaking his promise. He's keeping his promise. Because the nature of the covenant, the promise that he'd made to the people of Israel is, you will be my people, I will be your God, But if you turn away from me and worship idols, you will forfeit everything that I've given you. If you treat me like the other nations around you treat me, then I will treat you like the other nations around you and you will go into exile. That's exactly what he promised. Remember when we went through the Pentateuch a little while ago, the first five books of the Bible? This is what we saw. There would be consequences for Israel's rebellion. And this wasn't hidden away like in the the fine print of some dodgy phone contract or something right? This was clear as day. In fact, if you want to do something interesting, go and compare the words of this chapter, Ezekiel 6, with the words of Leviticus 26. And just look around like verse 30-ish. You'll see a lot of the same language being used. The altars broken down, the incense altars crushed, uh, the sore, the slain, the bones, all of this. It's all the same language because God is drawing a line between Israel's current idolatrous rebellion and what he'd already spoken to them centuries earlier. He's not breaking his word. He's keeping his word. You can have the land and be my people, but you must worship me alone. If you stop doing that, you will no longer have the land and you will no longer be my people. And then look at how this section ends. Ezekiel 6 verse 7. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is a really key phrase. You shall know that I am the Lord. See, God's purpose in bringing judgment on Israel is not merely justice. It's not merely he's keeping his word that if they turned away, that, that's true, but it's also more than that. God's purpose is actually to reveal who he is. It's to correct their false picture of him, which is the root of their problem. 
their false picture of him is what's leading them to justify their idolatry. And so as judgment comes, those left will know that he is the Lord. This picture you've had of me that, you know, I don't see your sin, that I've forsaken you, that I've let you down. I'm going to show you that, I, that you're wrong. I'm going to show you that, in fact, the reason for your exile is your sin. I sent you into exile and I'm on the throne. You can't replace me with an idol. And this is so important to grab onto, that phrase, and then you shall know that I'm the Lord. That phrase or, or a similar variant of it occurs about 70-ish times across this book. It's very much the key phrase of Ezekiel. Um, and every, it's showing that everything God does among his people, including judgment, is to correct their false picture of him. And here's a question. Do we still need that today? Maybe we've outgrown this problem because, you know, it's been 2,500-odd years. Do we still need God to correct our picture of him today? Well, I was reading a, a blog post just the other day uh, of a guy who uh, called himself a Christian who... Um, was wrestling with this idea of hell. And to be fair, that is a significant thing to wrestle with, right? This idea that God would punish sin with eternal punishment in hell, eternal judgment in hell. Um, that is what the Bible teaches. It teaches that we all rebel against God. In fact, like Israel, we are all idolaters, not because we bow down to a statue of Buddha or bow down at a high place or put something in a temple or whatever. Actually, an idol is anything that we try to put on the throne instead of God. Anything at all. It could even be a good thing, right? It can be family, saying, I live for family above God. It could be money or career, like I trust in my savings or my good job more than I trust in God. And the way that you can tell if you've got an idol or not, by the way, is to ask, I will finally be happy if, dot, 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 fill in the blank, if I get that high-paying job, if I have another kid, if I finally find a wife or husband. That's how you can tell if you've got an idol. I'll finally be happy or I'll never be happy if I lose, fill in the blank. I'll finally be safe or... I'll never be safe if I lose. See, that's how we can tell if we have an idol or not. If we're putting something on the throne, if we're trusting something or someone, worshipping something or someone above God. And God's response to idolatry is, well, actually, as I was practicing my sermon this morning and running through this bit, I was sitting at my desk and there's these two picture frames in front of my desk, right? And as I got to this point, I was talking about idolatry and I went, and God's response to idolatry is one of the picture frames fell down <laughs> and almost hit my computer. It's been sitting up there for months. It hasn't shown any signs of falling. And you don't want to ever read too much into things, but you know, it was an odd moment. And I stopped to pause and went, God, what are the idols in my heart? That's the question we need to ask ourselves because there's one theologian who said the heart is an idol-making factory. So my interpretation of that is either we've got an idol on the conveyor belt or we've got one on the pallet ready for delivery. Okay? We all struggle with idols, all of us. We all put things in the place of God in our lives, me included. And God's response to idolatry is judgment. It's righteous, just judgment. Even the judgment of hell. 
Now, the guy who was writing this blog post, he really struggled with that idea. And the conclusion that he came to was, I actually don't believe that God would send anyone to hell. I don't believe that hell is a real place because that's not my picture of God. He's a God of grace. He's a God of love. He's a God of second chances. There's no way that he would ever do that. That's interesting. His picture of God led him to that conclusion. I was talking with another Christian friend just this last week who said that he has a mate uh, that he used to know from, from uni. And, uh, and this guy and him often got into pretty robust conversations about their faith in, in Jesus. Um, one of the robust conversations that they had at a point was about this friend who often did things that you know, weren't really in line with what the Bible says Christians ought to do. And so a friend was talking with him about that and just trying to raise it and talk about it. Uh, and the guy goes, well, it doesn't matter. Jesus has forgiven all of my sin anyway. So it doesn't matter what I do. And my friend said, well, hold on. Even if like you murdered someone, the guy thought about it for a second, like with the sense of, oh, I'm cornered in this. And he went, well, yeah, like even if I did murder someone, like that doesn't matter to God. Isn't grace amazing? You see, if we have a lopsided picture of God that is only ever about grace and love and never about justice and righteousness, we're in danger. We may end up trading the true picture of God for a false picture of God. And that isn't the God who's on the throne. Friends, if you have a false picture of God like this, you are in grave danger. This is what the book of Ezekiel says to us today. Then you will know that I am the Lord when you look down at your map and realize, I might actually be a bit lost. But there is still hope. Come with me to verse 8. There is still hope. Because both for us and for the Israelites... God says that there's a way out. Verse 8. Yet I will leave some of you alive. So as he allows the Babylonians to come through and kill a number of people, and as he allows the Babylonians to come through and bring many off into exile, and as he destroys the temple, he says, I will leave some of you alive. Some of you will escape the sword. And then jump down to verse 10. Of those that are left alive, what's the goal? Well, you might recognize these words. And they shall know that I am the Lord. He's again leaving them alive to correct their false picture of him. You will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. That ought to grab your attention. <laughs> now, this isn't saying that God is evil. It's saying actually he's bringing the consequences of their evil back onto them. If you want more of an extended picture of that, look over at the next chapter. You could read it through later. Now, for those that God does spare, they shall know that he is the Lord. He's going to deal with their false assumptions. He'll show a true picture of who he is. The question is, how does that come about? Well, for that, we look sort of between the sandwich. Verse 8, I'll leave some of you alive. Verse 10, they will know that I'm the Lord. Here's the bit in between. Verse 9, take a look at how this will come about. So, for those who escape the sword, when you're scattered through the countries, you're in exile... Then those of you who escape will, what? Remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. 
There's a key word there. They'll remember me. And notice the word also, remember how I have been, what? Broken. They will remember me how I have been broken. This is in fact the only time that this word is used in the whole Bible to refer to God. I've been broken. I've been crushed over what you've done. Now, I don't know what your picture of God is. Maybe you have a picture of God that he's like, he's like a lawyer with a ledger, right? And so when you sin against him, it's like he looks down at the ledger and he goes, oh, oh, yeah, that's sin, that's bad. And then he looks over and the price is very high. I'm terribly sorry. And his face is just totally like stone-faced, totally impassive, unfeeling. That's not this picture of God. This picture of God is one where sin breaks his heart, so to speak. He is crushed by sin. And why? Because sin is not merely law-breaking. Sin is adultery. He talks about a whoring heart, one that goes whoring after idols. I know we don't use that word much these days, but it just means an adulterous heart. One that is cheating on God, essentially, with idols. Because here's the background. Right? God uh, saved his people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out. He brought them into the promised land, all based on the covenant that he made with, him, with them. This promise, a bit like a marriage vow. right? I promise that I'll protect you. I promise that I will, and so on and so on. But marriage vows go both ways, like I was saying before. And the Israelites haven't kept their side of the marriage vow. They've in fact gone and committed adultery against God. And it crushes him. In fact, a few years ago, um, there was a website called Ashley Madison. I've referred to this before. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a website where married people could go and find uh, a, a, an extramarital partner. So they could actually have an affair with someone else who was married. Um, they're like, oh, I don't have enough joy in my marriage, so I'm going to go find someone else. Now, a few years ago, uh, this hit the news because there was a hack on the site and all the users' details were exposed for the public to see. All these names came out and, of course, then the press was, was littered rightly with husbands and wives saying, I can't believe that he's done this to me. I can't believe that she's done this to me. This has is, this is deeply wounded me. Now, the situation with Israel is actually even worse because they're not hiding it. They're actually doing it in the open, in the temple, on the high places. They're not hiding it from God. And he's broken over it. He's crushed that his people would do this to him. And so come back to verse 9. These people who escape will remember me, how I have been broken. And no one likes remembering how they've broken someone's heart, you know, unless you're a sociopath of some kind. But... No one likes sitting in that place because like, ugh, like that feels gross. That feels horrible. That's actually the point. Then those of you who escape, you'll remember me, how you went whoring after their idols and they will be loathsome in their own sights for the evils that they've committed, for their abominations. The point is actually to sit in that place of horror over what they've done to God. 
It's actually the point. As they remember their adultery against God, the Israelites see who they really are before God. Actually, they are loathsome. I know it's full on, but it's true. They realize they're not innocent people who were let down by God. They're not good people who just made some mistakes. They sit in the shame of their idolatry and their adultery. And there's a difference here, by the way, between true shame and and false shame. This is a really important thing to grip. False shame is when someone has done something to you and you feel ashamed and dirty because of it. That's not the kind of shame we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of shame where you have done something to someone else and it shows who you really are on the inside. That's what's happening here. God actually wants to bring them to that place. In fact, that's the only way that they can know that I am the Lord. That's the only way that they can get this true picture of God. They need to see what they've been missing about him and be convinced that he is the one sitting on the throne even over their exile. They need to be in horror over their sin, the place of being lost in the bush without the right map to finally know God for who he truly is. The way the passage ends uh, in verses 11 to 14 is just really going back to the point that, hey, don't make assumptions. Don't assume that you're among those who are safe. He says to Ezekiel, clap your hands, stamp your feet. Again, try and get people's attention because they're not listening. They need to know that I am the Lord. That phrase is repeated twice again in verse 13, verse 14. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That's what he wants them to hear, who he is, this full picture. And he wants us to hear that again today. Now, what do we do with that? Because, you know, this is, again, 2,500 years ago. We're not in exile from a promised land. We don't have a temple that's about to be destroyed. And what some of us might do with this, in fact, is we hear all of this and we go, that... I'm so glad that that was for back then, but now we're under grace. Now we're this side of the cross. And that that impulse to go, now we're under grace, we're on the side of the cross, is a good thing because we are under grace and we are this side of the cross. But God hasn't changed. He wants us to see this full picture of who he is. Yes, a God of grace and a God of love and a God of righteous, just judgment against whom we've committed spiritual adultery. He wants us to have that full picture. Nothing's changed. In fact, now on this side of the cross, we can see that even more clearly than the folk at Ezekiel's time. Because you know why? We can actually see what our sin cost God. They couldn't see that back then, but now we can actually see the cost. We see it at the cross where God's response to our adulterous, idolatrous sin was to send his own son, Jesus, to become a man, to grow up always obedient to him, but then die a horrific death on a cross, spilling his blood for our sake. This is the cost of our idolatry. And as God is broken and crushed by our sin, as he is grieved by it, Jesus is broken and crushed on the cross. Because do you remember what he calls out in Matthew 27, 46? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the reason that God hasn't forsaken us is because he's forsaken his son in our place. We can see what our sin cost God. And that only by trusting 
in this Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross, took the judgment in our place, only by trusting in him can we be spared from the coming judgment. The judgment of eternal destruction in hell. And if you're someone who hasn't sat with the weight of that for a while, you need to hear this. If you're someone who has felt cold to the truths of the gospel lately, you need to hear this. If you've been untouched by the reality of this full picture of God, you need to hear this today. Like the Israelites, remember what your sin deserves. Remember who you've sinned against, the holy God on the throne. Remember what your sin is, not just law-breaking, adultery. And be in horror as you look at who you are before God if you didn't have Christ. Don't be like the man in the parable Jesus tells the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee who looks up to heaven and says, oh, Lord God, thank you so much that I'm not like this horrible tax collector, right? Instead, be like the tax collector who bows down, beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because we desperately need his mercy. And until we have this full picture of God, who he really is on the throne, his righteous judgment of our sin, our adultery against him, grace actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In fact, um, a Puritan by the name of Thomas Watson once said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I think those are very true words. We must sit in horror over our sin for grace to impact us richly and deeply. And it might even be helpful to use this in your daily prayer life. Um, Andrew mentioned before, before he prayed, um, that we use a format of praying here at church, ACTS, ACTS, which stands for, if you remember, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, which means asking. Right Now that second step, confession, is a really important one. We might want to kind of get over that really quick. We go, adoration, praise God, praise God, confession, sorry I've sinned, thanksgiving, thank you Lord for all these great things, and now here's all the things we're going to ask for. But that step, confession, is so important. Again, because till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And if you find it hard to sit in that place and, and experience that horror over your sin and what Christ has forgiven you of, then what you may want to do is use the prayers of people who have, in my case, a much bigger picture of God than I do. <laughs> um, this is a great book. It's called The Valley of Vision subtitled A Collection of Puritan Prayers and Devotions. Um, you can get this at Kurong, 20 bucks. Um, they may have some at Cornerstone. Um, Valley of Vision, you can Google it as well. Uh, and there's a bunch of these prayers are available online. Um, they help us just get to that place. Like it's just using the words and the language of people who have sat there a lot and, and kind of worked out that posture a bit more. Um, so yeah, check that out. I'll leave it up the front if you want to take a look at it or you can Google it. Um, I will pray one of these prayers at the end of the sermon today so you can hear what it's like. But um, look, just let me finish with this. What will you do with this picture of God? This picture of God that Ezekiel gives us, this full picture. 
And what I'd say is, is don't make the same mistakes that the Israelites did. You know, are you going to hand wave over sin? Are you going to think that, that his judgment is not just, even the judgment of hell? Instead, remember your sin and remember who you sin against. Remember the cost of it in Christ's life for you. Be in horror so that you may know he is the Lord and Christ may be for you the sweetest saviour and the only one worth worshipping. Let's pray together. O Lord, no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in your sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has been often praiseless sound. My best services are filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, let me find a hiding place in your appeasing wounds. Though my sins rise to heaven, your merits soar above them. Though unrighteousness weighs me down to hell, your righteousness exalts me to your throne. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in you plead my acceptance. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice to your throne of boundless grace. Grant me to hear your voice assuring me that by your stripes I'm healed, that you were bruised for my iniquities, that you have been made sin for me, that I may be righteous in you, that my grievous sins, my manifold sins are all forgiven, buried in the ocean of your concealing blood. I am guilty, but pardoned, lost, but saved. Wandering, but found. Sinning, but cleansed. Give me perpetual brokenheartedness. Keep me always clinging to your cross. Flood me every moment with descending grace. Open to me the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like a crystal flowing clear and unsullied through my wilderness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see lots more about this God as we keep trekking through Ezekiel together. But first, uh, we're going to share in communion.